Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam, this is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. This conversation is one I've been wanting to have for quite a while. Dan Villamere is the president of CNM Precision Tech in Hudson, New Hampshire, right around the corner from me, and they focus on CNC turn parts. I've known CNM for decades, and they have really grown since Dan took the helm. They are a family business, and Dan is both a second and third generation owner, which is interesting. We peel that back a little bit. Medium to high volumes are their forte, and we spend a fair amount of time talking about certifications and the value there. Why do them? Moving upstream with customers and becoming more sticky with them through assemblies and even totally finished product that is shipped directly to their customers. I think that's the ultimate value. Also, how Dan approaches big multi-year contracts. There's even a great war story on how they got into wire EDM. Dan is just a super smart guy, and I really enjoy this conversation. I think you'll learn a lot from his thoughtful approach to running a shop. Let's go. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Dan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. We finally get to connect, get you on here. We have the advantage that we've known each other for several years now, actually known of each other's companies for a lot more years, but got acquainted the last few years. And I've actually been through your shop several times, which is not usually the case when I'm talking to someone. So many cool things you're doing, your history of your company that I want to get into. I thought we would start first, though, with I had asked you how you would describe your shop, and you said CNC turning, which is different than perhaps how I would have described your shop. And I thought it was relevant because it talks about how the industry is changing. So maybe you can speak to how 
and why you call it CNC turning now and perhaps how the turn parts industry is changing to reflect this wording. Yeah, so I mean, we started out as it was actually called CNM screw machine products. So we started out as an old cam operated machine shop, brown and sharp machines. And mm-hmm. that's really, we got into the turning industry. Most of the stuff we do is made out of bar stock. So whether it's round bar, hex bar, square bar, but most of the stuff that we do is, is bar stock. So we feed the bars into our machines and typically those bars are turning, which comes into play when we say CNC turning. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where that comes from. And you know we've obviously evolved and so has the equipment that we've purchased over time where we have a lot of live tooling and we can do fancy milling, multi-axis machining within our turning centers, but it still comes down to CNC turning with a lot of milling capabilities as well. Well, that is perhaps a good segue into having you talk a little bit more about CNM and give us some of the parameters, you know, how big is the shop, how many people, shifts, all, you know, things so we can understand what you're doing. Yeah, so we got about 96,000 square feet in Hudson, New Hampshire. We have two shifts, so we have 90 employees approximately. Mm -hmm. And second shift is a little bit lighter shift. We'd love to hire a lot more people for second shift. We find that's a a little difficult these days. A lot of our machines, you know, are made to run. That's what we are. We're a production shop. You know, we focus on mid to high volume production, I would say. So thousands to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of pieces. So we've been around since 1979. Mm-hmm. So we've been, we've been at this a long time. Of course, we've evolved a lot since, since that start. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to get into the start, but again, I want to really understand your shop. And you mentioned the term made to run, which is not something that I hear frequently. What's your definition of that? So for us, we focus on engineered for production. You know, that's one of the the terms that we use here internally and with our customers. So we focus on basically taking a product from one of our customers, an OEM, say, or Mm -hmm. a tier one supplier, and we make component parts and assemblies, sub-assemblies for their products. But we focus on getting them to full-scale production. So we help out with the prototyping phase. We help out at the beginning phases of development, the NPI stuff, the new product introduction, Mm -hmm. help our customers develop their products with the ultimate goal of getting full rate production running at the shop. So made to run is that partnership going going from concept design to perhaps hundreds of thousands of parts. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So we use engineered product for production is another term that, that we use. We use here a lot. How many machining centers do you guys have and what types are they? Maybe give us a little more breakdown. Yeah. So we have about a hundred machining centers. We have about 70 Swiss machines they're called. Um, mm-hmm. So those are sliding headstock machines. So those are where the bar can kind of move in and out. It's not your traditional collet style machine. Uh, it uses a guide bushing. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically it grasps the bar, but it doesn't actually clamp down on it completely. It allows you to do small, intricate work. Originally, these machines were made for the watch industry. So Citizen is one of our main machine suppliers. So we, we have a lot of Citizen machines. And I, it, it I the, assume that when you mentioned watch, that they are Swiss machines? 
Correct. Which exactly. is where the term comes from. Exactly. That's right. So we have citizens, we have star machines, we have Sugamis. Those are the three main Swiss machines that we have. Mm-hmm. And then on the lathe side, which is kind of bigger machining for us, you know, we go down to about a 32nd of an inch in diameter on the Swiss machines, up to about 38 millimeters in diameter. So, you know, inch and a half, inch, you know, close to an inch and a half. And then on the lathe side, we go up to about three inches in diameter. And so those are for bigger parts. And we have Eurotex and Mianos on that side of the house. And we actually just purchased three Mazaks as well. So those are why, new machines why, that are. Why sure. did you switch to Mazaks? Why introduce another manufacturer into the mix? Yeah, so a lot of it was about the product and project that we were working on and are working on, I should say. Um, mm-hmm. The material that we're using, these are beefy machines. They're made to handle high temp alloys. And so they're similar in nature and what they can do. These are very rigid machines. And that was the reasoning for that. What sort of materials? High temp then is something you're comfortable yeah. with. What Give us the range of materials you're running. Yeah. So we do anything from brass, which is obviously like butter for machinists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, to aluminum, to copper, to all basically all of your stainless steels, your 303s, your 316s, your 304s, 174s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we go into more of the high temps. We do titanium, we do Inconel, you know, we've done some Monel, Monel. We do a bunch of different types of, of materials. A286 is one that seems to be poking its head out lately, which is, has been trouble troublesome to get, we'll say. <laughs> A286, I'm not familiar. Is that what, what sort of it's a, alloy it's a mix high, is yeah. that? It's a high, it's a nickel-based alloy. Mm-hmm. High nickel content, which obviously right now is tough to get with everything going on in Eastern Europe. So, Where is, what mills typically does that come out of? Are they U.S. mills or are they other? Europe, yeah, European, Ukraine, which is, and Russia, you know, that's where they're mining a lot of those metals. Right. But yeah, we, there's a couple, there's some domestic mills, but there's a lot of European mills that, that produce that stuff. So the mills for allies like that tend to be located closer to the mining is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense. Yeah. Okay. One of the things that is different about your shop when I've walked through is you don't throw your scrap material into a bin and then have it carted away. You actually process it. Can you, talk a little bit about that and how it works and why you're doing it and maybe where the threshold was where you brought that in-house? Yeah. So we do some, like I said, pretty high volume stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. We're making a lot of swarf, we call it, or chips, right? So this is a subtractive process. So we're taking metal away from the bars. So we're left with, with chips, you know, at the end of the day. And, you know, we have very high volume of chips. So we're looking at it and saying, okay, how can we process these? There's oil content. So we use a oil for our cutting fluid. Mm -hmm. So not only were we, you know, losing the value of the chips and it was taking up a lot of room, but we were actually losing a lot of money with the oil as well. So Mm -hmm. we were looking at options and what we can do to process the chips to recoup some of the oil. And that's actually how it started. Ah. And so we looked at spinning the chips, which a lot of people do to get the oil out of it. And again, you can take that oil, filter it down and put it back in the equipment. But then we found a a company that actually briquettes the material. What I mean by that is we take the material, we put it into a grinder and then compact it into basically what looks like a hockey puck. 
And that hockey puck then takes up a lot less room now and right. also squeezes the oil out that we can filter down. So it's kind of a twofold benefit. Not only do you get your oil back, but now you're taking up a lot less room with your scrap metals as you recycle them. And we really came to start with it when we were doing a big military project and we were doing a ton of aluminum on a very high volume machine called a hydromat. And so we were looking at the chips were almost, it was almost unmanageable with the chips because we were making so many chips. <laughs> and so we looked at this machine and we bought one and we actually bought three of them right away because we decided to do how, it. How our, much are they? They're like 150 grand. I think this was back in 2012. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure what they are right now, but it, it's been so worth it to be able to again save the room and to, to recoup the oil as well as you get a better price for your scrap metal as well because there's less oil content in it. So we get down to less than 1% oil in the chips that we send out. Mm-hmm. What was the time to recoup the cost of putting in all the equipment? The ROI on it was about a year for those machines. Yeah. That's how many chips we were making. Now on a traditional shop, if we didn't have a couple of these big high volume projects going on, it would have been longer, sure. but, but it was quick with this particular project. Yeah. Makes sense. Let's jump back to the 70s, I believe, when you guys got started. Yeah. How did CNM get started? What's the story there? Yeah, so it was 1979 was the year it was founded. Mm-hmm. I was my father and my grandfather, who was actually my mom's dad. So it was my dad's father-in-law. He was a screw machinist and he was working for a company as a screw machinist. And the guy promised him equity in the company. And he came to my father one day and said, the guy screwed him out of the equity in the business. You know, they had an agreement in place. It didn't go down the way it was supposed to. And he was complaining to my father one day. And my father said, well, let's start our own business. So my my grandfather, whose last name's Cole, which is my middle name, that's the C in Mm CNM. He ended up starting this business with my dad. They bought the Brown and Sharp screw machines. And then my father hired his, his friend or, or brought in as a partner, his friend from the Marines, Roger Martin, who's the M in CNM, Martin. So okay. Cole and Martin is the, is the genesis of CNM's name. Roger ran kind of the office. My grandfather ran the shop and my dad was more on the, in the background. He had been doing a lot of other things. He had a sheet metal shop, an electronic shop. Yeah, he's he, quite the entrepreneur before this point too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Serial entrepreneur. Um, but yeah, he was working for Digital and Wang himself back in the 70s, and, and uh, he was a buyer and was dealing with all these suppliers and, and was having all the issues. And he said, I could do a better job than these guys. <laughs> and that's how he ended up starting his business. So it was, it, again, just kind of that attitude, that can-do attitude that's still right. part of our core values today. So that, that's how, again, that was the genesis of it back in 1979. My dad was in the background, had did do some sales for the company, but mostly financial investor. And, and helping them out from a strategy standpoint. And then my, my grandfather ran the shop and Roger ran the office. And how did you get from there to where you are today? Yeah. So, you know, as time went on, you know, CNM was kind of putting along. They were doing pretty good. You know, they were, they were definitely making a good living. But, you know, the digital, obviously, boom was going on. And then the crash subsequently happened in the late 80s. And my father ended up selling off his business that he was doing. And he said, you know, CNM, I think that's a lot of potential. And so he got more involved with CNM 
and started investing in Swiss machines. And that was kind of the, the mm. big step that we took. In that time, my grandfather, you know, had gotten older and gotten sick and, and my father bought him out of the business because he kind of wanted to retire and, and he ended up passing away in the 90s. And over time, you know, I started getting older and I was in college and he ended up buying Roger out of the business as well. And kind of at the same time, he developed stage four non-Hodgson lymphoma. So I was a junior in college. So it was kind of at, time, at that time, he owned 100% of the business. And he's like, Dan, I got to figure out what to do. They're not giving me a, a good shot of surviving this. It was, it was 50-50 at best. Yeah. And so I had the quick realization. I had to make a decision on which career path I wanted to take. And uh, so I decided. What was, your, to, what was your major in college? I was a finance major. So I was in, I was in finance. So I quickly took the opportunity. I actually was at the University of Connecticut. And I transferred to the University of New Hampshire Business mm -hmm. School, stuck with finance, but started doing operations management classes as well. And that was really where I started to kind of hone in on, okay, what do I want to do here? And, and you know, if I do take over this business, what's that going to look like? And that's really how it started for yeah. me. Well, let, I want to jump in. So to let the audience know that your dad is still alive today. So <laughs> it, it all turned out really well from his health perspective, but right. obviously it was a scary time. And there was a time where he couldn't be that involved in the business because he was literally fighting for his life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was, it was scary. I always try and say that quickly. So thank you for jumping in. He's yeah. doing very well. He's seven, just turned 73 and uh, he still runs around like he's 25, loves golf. So he's basically retired at this point. And, uh, you know, he's enjoying himself, spends his winters in Florida, but he's always been a rock for me. You know, he's shared every lesson he's learned, positive or negative thing, you know, mistakes he's made, things he's done right. And he's been a great partner for me in this business. So it's been, been a pleasure working with him. So what year was it when you started, when that all happened, where you guys had the conversation and you transferred up to UNH and started getting more involved? And then when did he sort of fully transfer the operations to you? I know he's still in, still involved. It has been involved, yeah. but you yeah. know, there, there was, there was that transition point. So I'm sure that there's a lot of listeners going, all right, hopefully it's not a health issue, but there's other reasons that there's generational torch passing. And I want to dive into the dynamics of that a little bit. Yeah. So that happened in 2005 was when he was diagnosed. And that was when the conversation started happening. I know he didn't want to sell the business, but it was at the point where we had to make that decision. So yeah. I jumped in, I got out of college in 2007 and just got involved right away. And I was actually involved while I was in school too. And so when I, when I got out, he still was around, he was still working. He eventually got better, which again, we, we said that earlier, but in 2017 is really the time when things shifted, when he's like, you know what, I'm done. I want to really back out. I want to downshift my life a little bit. He wants to go away and not, you know, go away to Florida for the winter and not really have to worry about things. And, sure. uh, you know, I had been in the president of the company at that point for a couple of years and he was happy with the way it was going. So that's where he just kind of backed out. And that's where I kind of took the opportunity to okay, what do I want to do with it now? You know, who do we want to be, you know, keeping in mind who we are and where we've been and, 
keeping a lot of those core values in place, but where do we want to go from here? Let's bookmark that. Yeah. I, I want to definitely talk about that, but between 2005, 2007 and 2017, how did you divide up roles? How did you figure out how you were going to work together? Did you, was that formal? Was it informal? How did that happen? Yeah. So we're definitely pretty old school. You know, I don't, we didn't have like an HR department. I think our controller was our HR person. So it was, there was no formal job description. It was like, Hey, learn the business, you know, follow these people around, see what they do, which is tough. You know, it's a tough dynamic. I'm the young whippersnapper coming in, but I just, I tried to be very respectful of everyone understanding that I wasn't a machinist. I'm still not a machinist. So I, I greatly respect everything that, that these machinists do, the engineers that we have unbelievably talented. So uh, I started kind of off in the office, you know, kind of understanding the way the business works, also working on the floor, understanding again, the way the business works out there, mm-hmm. uh, worked in quoting, worked basically in, in almost every job outside mm-hmm. of, I think, being an engineer and just tried to absorb as much as I could uh, mm-hmm. and just kind of jumped from, from job to job as we saw fit at the time. It was not very formal. I'll tell you that, Okay. Uh, you know, and that's, and, you know, going forward, those are some of the things that I wanted to change. Right. So when we talk about the strategy later, yeah. you know, that's some of the stuff that I wanted to change in the business is more formal, formalizing it. What did he do a lot of the sales and you were more in the shop or at what point did you get involved in the sales? Yeah. He, he's always kind of, brought me along on sales calls. You know, he is a natural salesman. So it was definitely great to be able to go to customers. If he had customer visits, you know, he would take me so I could see that part of the business. Yeah. So it, it, it all kind of flowed into each other. It all depended on what was going on the day, the week, the month. So it was a pretty fluid situation. And, you know, it definitely gave me a pretty broad perspective of how the business ran and what we were doing. So. And to show the impact that you've made on the company. How big were you back in 2005, 2007? So back in 2005, we probably, if I just say we had 35 machines, something along those lines, and probably 45 people. Now we're at hundred machines and 90 people. So, you know, close to double the size on each. And obviously we were in a 35,000 square foot building. Now we're in a 96,000 square foot building. What you just said, really, if you parse it, you doubled the people, but you essentially tripled the space and tripled the machines. And to do that, it sounds like this is, well, maybe maybe we jump into some of this strategy here. You had to use more automation, more CNC, get away from CAM if you were still using it at that point. So let's, let's use this as a segue. You had a vision of the company. What did you want to do? And how did you start to implement it? Yeah. So we wanted to grow the business, but we didn't want to just grow with buying more machines and doing the same exact thing we were doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the big pieces of our strategy is to move up in our customer's value stream. So we don't want to just make widget A. We want to know where widget A goes and then combine, you know, make widget A, widget B, buy widget C and put them all together and ship them to our customer. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we were looking at how we can add value Beyond just assembling parts, you know, inventory management and, you know, basically you know, working off of contracts, building to inventory 
and shipping just in time to our customers. So doing Kanban releases and really working with our customers to understand what their pain points were. And those were some of the things that came up for sure. So you wanted to move up in the value stream. Give us some examples of what you did and and how you convinced the customers to give you a shot at doing that. Yeah, so we've, we've had many examples, but I'll give you a quick one. We were doing a part for one of our defense customers where we were making the base part out of titanium. Mm-hmm. Then we were having it sent out to be EDM'd from our, our customer's approved supplier. Mm-hmm. We're having all sorts of issues with it. And we were having issues with the, with the EDM vendor. And so we went out and, you know, we're having quality issues. We were having delivery issues. The price was very, very high, we thought. So we went out and we looked at, okay, what would happen if we brought the EDM in-house? What would that look like? And you had, you had never done EDM before? None, zero. (laughs) (laughs) So, but it was something that, again, it's mechanical, you know, it's machining. Yeah. We think we can figure it out, right? So we go out, we start looking at it, and we go to our customer and make a proposal. And we said, hey, you know, we're having quality issues with the supplier. We're having deliveries issues with the supplier. And we think the price is too high. We know that we can fix all of this if we bring it in-house and bring it under our roof. And here's what we came up with. And, you know, the contract's for 100,000 pieces. And we think we can save you a lot of money and get rid of all of those other issues we talked about. They're like, do you really think you can do that? I know we can do that. So we had a rapport with this customer and they ended up trusting us to try it. We proved it out. We had to do capability studies on the machines. We had to prove the process out. And we ended up for a hundred thousand pieces, brought it in-house, saved the customer $26 per part. At a hundred thousand parts. hundred thousand parts. Wow. And... Zero quality issues since that time and zero delivery issues since that time. You know, that's, so those, those are the that, stories we tell. <laughs> you know, that's what every OEM wants from a yeah. supplier and kudos to you guys. But that's the beauty of, I guess you get, to, I remember this, you get to a certain scale and you can, you can try and you can try things like this. Sometimes they work sometimes they don't but if they fail they don't kill you if you would have invested some hours in a wire edm machine and then if it didn't work you could sell the wire edm and recoup probably most of that cost and you've got some experience but that was the worst case scenario but obviously the best case scenario is what you have today and that's unbelievable for the customer you're a much better partner and that's what it is it's you know we preach partnership that's what we sell to our customers. And that's what we believe. You know, we <laughs> want to be your manufacturing arm. We want to be the person you can come to with a tough problem and we solve it for you and you never have to worry about it again. Well, let me have you talk about, we on the tour, we ducked into a room where there was a woman who was packaging stuff, literally packaging product for, I'll, I'll say retail sale, as yeah. retail as it gets for industrial and manufacturing. And, you know, like the shrink wrap type stuff. Yeah. And talk, talk about that because the, you are, you're doing it all for them. Yeah. So again, as part of our strategy, moving up in the value stream also creates stickier business for us. You know, mm-hmm. there's supply-based consolidations happen all the time. Yep. And the last person people want to get rid of is the people that are obviously good suppliers, but doing all that extra stuff for them. 
Mm-hmm. And so we've aligned with another one of our customers that we're actually making parts for them, parts that we've been making for a long time, but we're taking it to the next level where we laser mark them, uh, we package them into their packaging and it goes straight to their distribution channel. So it has their labels in it. It has their proprietary packaging that we're putting it in uh, yeah. and it and bypasses their quality system. Again, those are things you have to build a rapport with your customer in order to make them feel comfortable doing something like that. But it bypasses their quality system and goes straight to their distribution channel. Yeah. So that's just, again, that value added service that you're not going to get from a normal, what I would say, job shop. But it's an opportunity for every job shop owner to have the initiative and say, ask customer, what else can we do for you? And I know there was a pain point for the customer in terms of sometimes there weren't enough parts in the packaging or there weren't enough packages in the box. You solved that pain point. Oh, talk about that, please. Yeah. So we held a Kaizen event here and we were talking about just some of their challenges because they actually did this process internally as well. And the number one customer complaint. So this is, there's five parts per package. Their number one customer complaint was there was one part missing in a package. Mm-hmm. And just when they said it immediately, I was like, well, why don't we weigh the packages? You know, if, if it's anything other than a multiple of five, you have to calibrate the scales and stuff. But yeah. if it's anything other than a multiple of five, you're going to know one's missing. I'm like, huh, I never thought of that. So we started doing that and it eliminated their number one customer complaint. Just a yeah. simple suggestion in a Kaizen event when we were doing this process. And it's something that they were until you took it over, they were doing it themselves and they hadn't figured out the solution. That's right. Yeah. yeah it's, they were probably so close to it. You know, you get a different set of eyes on it and yeah. you know, it just kind of came quick. Yeah. Well, I love that. You talk about Kaizen. How did you guys learn how to implement Kaizen and embrace it? Yeah. A lot of it, honestly, has been learned from customers. They started coming in. So I, I knew what it was. You know, again, I'd taken operations management classes in college. Mm-hmm. I had learned about lean, but you know, I was never practicing it. I wasn't a certified green belt or black belt or anything, mm-hmm. but so we'd have customers come in. We were aligned with some really, let's say forward thinking customers that were very lean themselves. And when we do projects like this, they would come in with their team and they'd actually host the Kaizen event. And that's where we kind of got our jumping off point and said, wow, this thing can really bring value to us. And we started learning about it. And then we started training people and hiring people that were lean experts. And that's really mm-hmm. how the genesis of it and, and realize the value ourselves. How did you hire lean experts? Where did you find them? How did you know that they actually were good? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> you get it. It's a little bit of a gamble, right? You know, but you know, you talk about projects, you understand if people can speak to the projects that they've worked on, what their mentality was, how they handled it, what their approach was, you can kind of get a pretty good idea of their um, expertise and their background. But we've also trained a lot of people internally Mm -hmm. um, to go to, you know, get their green belts and subsequently back black belts. So you are doing a lot of medium to high volume production. And that may lend itself to some of these practices more than a shorter run shop, but there's advantages, I would assume, if you're even a short run shop to using these types of tools. Could you speak to that a little bit? 
absolutely. I mean, look no further than 5S, right? I mean, knowing where everything it, it, is. Be, be, before we, we <laughs> jump into that, in case somebody doesn't know what 5S, what is it? Yeah, so that's basically having everything in its place and knowing where it is. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's an organizational tool that you can use to, to again, make sure that everything is on your bench when you need it, having things at point of use and not having to search for things, you know, because that's one of the biggest time wastes I think in any shop is looking for stuff. Um, yeah. Jay, you probably uh, understand uh, that. <laughs> we had the silhouette boards for every cell. And, exactly. And what that means is every tool had a silhouette on the board. And if it wasn't there, you knew what tool was missing and you went and you, <laughs> You figured it out and the cell leaders were responsible for keeping the boards fully stocked, if you will. I don't know all the, the operations isn't my forte, but yeah. <laughs> it, it, it came out of, I would be on the shop floor and I would see people wandering around looking for something. It's like, no, this has to stop. <laughs> <laughs> so the five, five S stands for sort, set in order, shine, standardize and sustain. And they've actually expanded that now to six S's and say added safety in there uh, mm. as well, because that's obviously critically, critically important. Mm. But yeah, those are all things that, again, you want to make sure things are where they need to be when you need them. And that's what it's all about. And that's, I'm sure there's YouTube videos. There's probably a lot of stuff online. So if you are a shop owner, say uh, you only, let's say you're a shop owner and you have 20 folks in your shop, you may not have the resources to go out and hire someone, but there's a lot of tools online. And probably you, I think your customers, particularly your larger customers, if they're using any of these tools would be happy to talk with you and maybe bring somebody in and coach your team. Absolutely. MEP is a great resource, mm. manufacturing extension partnership, yeah. SME. I mean, you can go on any, there's so many websites you can go on, YouTube videos. And a lot of it, when you start doing it, it's, it's a lot of it's common sense. That's just, it's so close to you again, that it's sometimes. Well, what, what would you say to the shop owner who is listening going, I don't have time for this. This sounds like it's non-revenue generating activities. I need people at the machines making parts. What's, what's your answer? Short-term pain, long-term gain. That's it. You got to invest the time, just like you invest in equipment, invest in people. You mm -hmm. got to invest in the processes and your organization. Yeah. Another investment that you have made a lot in is certifications. And what are the certifications your shop holds now? And more importantly, why did you decide to get them? And what has been the benefit? We started off, we were ISO back in the late 90s. We got ISO certified. Mm -hmm. um, and then we jumped to AS9100 certified when we started doing a lot more defense work. That really came out of a prerequisite from some of our customers saying, hey, you know, if you want to continue doing business with us, you got to get AS9100 certified. So mm -hmm. we did that kind of on a customer request, and which was, a, which was a jump. You know, there was a lot more there as far as, you know, how we manage the business, continuous improvement activities, again, which led to some of these other things we talk about as well. So there's obviously a cost to get certified to maintain the requirements of the certification. If you look back, though, are the 
things the certifications have made you do made the shop run better and generated efficiencies that have more than paid for it? And obviously you're, you're getting business from customers, so you can maybe have an ROI on the business you're getting, but hopefully if the certifications are actually good from the shop perspective, they are making you a better shop. Yeah, it's interesting. So there's a lot of people that just use these certifications for certifications. They don't use it to manage their business. They use it as a piece of paper to show their customer. Every year when the auditor comes around, they're scrambling to make things look right and, you know, make sure they get their audit passed again. What we've done over the past five years is really adopted our QMS as our BMS, our business management system. And so we've taken the approach to say, okay, we used to be those people. We used to be the people who would kind of scramble at, at audit time and, you know, oh, we got to do this, 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 and this, and, and make it happen. But we weren't really using the processes and the procedures that were in the QMS mm-hmm. dictated by AS900. So we started doing it and we started noticing a positive change in the company and how we ran and being able to fall back on these procedures. Okay, this is what we came up with. This is what we say we do. We need to do this, you know, and when there was any deviation from that, you'd go back. Here's the process. Here's the procedure. It helped from a training perspective. It helped from how we ran from a process perspective. So it was for us, it was definitely a worthy investment. I think it took a while to realize, you know, how powerful it was or could be for our company. But we did do that. We finally did do that. What flipped the switch where you said we're going to change? I think it was when we started doing kind of the strategic planning process. So that was when I kind of took over, you know, I hired some good people, you know, that was part of, part of the strategy that I built out again, back in 2017, when I kind of took over, that was part of what I wanted to do and, and define who we wanted to be and where we wanted to go. So I built out the strategy and started with the core values of the company then quickly moved into the vision and the mission and Mm -hmm. then looked at the organizational gaps that we had in order to get to where we wanted to go. We didn't have an operations manager. We didn't have like a real production manager. I would say, you know, we were kind of factioned or siloed. You want to say it that way, where we'd have each area kind of doing their own thing. And so I hired a lot of good people that came in here and we all collaborated and agreed that, using our quality management system was a good tool for us to be able to do what we wanted to do and meet, meet our strategic goals. So that was kind of the, the spark, I think, that, that flipped for us, for me anyway. The other certification, which you didn't mention, is the 13485. Yep. So that's one we just got. We just got it about maybe three months ago, not even that. So ISO 13485 is our medical certification. So Again, that was something that we did. We have medical customers. We do medical work. Mm-hmm. The customers that we currently have don't require ISO 13485, but there's a lot of medical customers out there that do require 13485. A lot of people that we wanted to align ourselves and partner with. You know, we saw obviously over the last couple of years, a lot of things happen. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the vulnerabilities have shown in the United States supply chain, mm-hmm. uh, medical manufacturing being one of them. You know, there was a lot of stuff being done overseas, um, not only from, you know, medical devices, but from your pharmaceuticals, you know, they were just the vulnerabilities showed themselves. Yeah. And so 
we see there's a big opportunity for medical manufacturing in the U.S. And there already was some, but we feel like that's going to increase substantially over the next five to 10 years where they start bringing home those, those jobs and the medical devices to be manufactured here. So we decided to go out and invest in 13485. We had a lot of the base structure there with AS9100. There's a lot of similarities. There are some differences. You know, I think from a regulation standpoint, they're, they're a little tougher in 13485. They have some software validation stuff that you need to do. We use a we're, you know, pretty digital now. We use a lot of different systems to run our company. Mm-hmm. MES systems or manufacturing execution systems. We have our ERP systems, our quality systems. There's all sorts of software systems that we have now. And anything that can affect or potentially affect the customer's part needs to be validated. So you need to prove that, you know, whenever you do an upgrade, you know, this is going to work same as it did last time and it doesn't affect the customer's product. So those were things that we weren't used to. And there is a little bit of gray area there because like say Microsoft Office, yeah, you know, if you go and ask them to give us software validation, they laugh at you, you know? <laughs> so it's like, you kind of go back and forth with the auditor to say, okay, this is a widely used product. You know, yeah. it should be validated in itself before, yeah. you know? So there was some of those conversations with the auditors, but we did have to go on, go back and, and work with our suppliers to validate some of the softwares that we were using which was an interesting piece of the process. So you've made other investments as well to get into the medical, more into the medical world. Could you talk about what you've done there? Yeah. So we built a clean room last year. So that was, again, something we kind of did on spec, but we were doing some assembly work for defense industry and the optics world. So which Mm -hmm. is very important to have FOD free. So foreign object, object debris have FOD-free materials. So mm-hmm. they have pretty strict requirements about any sort of fibers or anything that, that's in their products because it can affect the optics. So we built it. We were doing assemblies for them. We also built it to grow our medical uh, offerings as well. So that's something that we're at the very early stages of selling this to our customers right now, but we've had some promising results already. It was more on spec, you said. You don't have, before this, you didn't have a clean room in your facility. So you went out and hired consultants. What were the ways you put your arms around saying, okay, we're going to be able to manufacture class, I think you have a class A clean room, is that correct? Yeah, Yeah, so we're going to manufacture class A products for the medical industry. Yes. So we did some research. We did some research on which class, for, first of all, which class is going to satisfy some of the requirements that we're looking at doing. Okay. We landed on class eight was going to be an acceptable level to be at. We worked with our HVAC company. We have a great maintenance team and facilities team. So we actually did some of it on our own, mm-hmm. uh, but we consulted with our HVAC company. They told us what we needed and we kind of collaborated with them. We built the room out. We knew the specs we wanted. We actually built this building that we're in. Mm-hmm. My uncle, who's my dad's brother, and then my cousin, Aaron, who was my other dad's brother's son, they both work for us. And they're very mechanically inclined. And they've also had a lot of experience in, in construction. Okay. And so we've kind of utilized those resources. And 
we built it ourselves. Honestly, we, we did the research, figured out what we needed, you know, contacted the appropriate people when we needed to do it. Mm-hmm. Main, main person was HVAC because that's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to have HEPA filters and you need to have circulation and negative air pressure. But if you read their class eight regulation, that was all doable. Our operations manager, Dennis, as well, comes from medical background. So that was very helpful. So he kind of knew a lot of the requirements. So that was all put that together. And that's how we ended up executing the project. How much of an investment was it to, and how many square feet and and how much did it cost in ballpark to get it up and running? Yeah, we have about a thousand square foot clean room. It was about 150 grand for us to do it. So for a small shop, that's a pretty substantial commitment because also sounds like there's a lot of time involved with your team, but for a larger company who maybe is already doing medical, this is not an, it's a fairly reasonable investment. Yeah. We feel the payback's going to be fairly quick. You know, we're already seeing it. We've already landed a couple of projects. Yeah. How are you marketing it or getting business, making either existing customers or new customers aware of your services? Yeah, a lot of it. So we, we do obviously the blogs and the newsletters and those types of things, but a lot of it's just talking to your customers, telling them what, what, what's new, you know, informing them. That's a big thing for us. We're always investing. So we're always talking to the buyers and, and the purchasing managers and the commodity managers. And hey, when you, here's what's when new you say we're, who are the actual people in your organization that are doing that talking and how do you ensure they're all on the same talking point. Yeah. So internally it's our sales team. So we have a sales mm-hmm. manager, myself, obviously I consider myself part of the sales team. And then we have two other people that I would say are outward facing on mm-hmm. our sales team. That's again, internally. Uh, and then we have sales reps, independent sales reps that are out there um, mm-hmm. that are again, saying the same thing. We do have a, a script. We do have, ah. uh, <laughs> yeah. So we have that, that. That, that. That's what I was getting at because it's really important that they hear the same thing from different people. Yeah. So we call it singing from the same sheet of music, right? Yep. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. we want to make sure that, again, it's consistent. It's not a script. It's more talking points. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's not like a robot script, but, you know, we just want to make sure that, again, we, to your point, we're all on the same page. We know, mm-hmm. we know what we're selling, but yeah, that, that does exist for our sales reps and for our internal people. But a lot of it comes up in general conversation, you know, with, with these companies, with these buyers. Hey, just want to let you know, we've added this capability. You know, we're taking on a lot of, you know, value-added work. You know, what are some of your pain points? Are you having issues with parts going together, stack-up tolerances, and those types of things? Mm-hmm. You know, you start talking about that to customers on that level. You can work with the engineering teams on that, too. They start to listen, you know, because they're living those at that time. So you start hitting on some of those points and they perk up a little bit and they're willing to entertain possibly looking at a different solution to get the headache off of their plate. You mentioned blogs and newsletters. You you have a scheduled release for these types of marketing items? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So we try to do once a month. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes it's every six weeks. We try to do once a month, put something out there from a newsletter standpoint and from a blog standpoint. They usually coincide. We usually put a newsletter right. out with the blog kind of. The newsletter, with newsletter is emailed? 
newsletters, email. Yep. So we use HubSpot. So we manage our customer database through HubSpot. We'll manage mm-hmm. the blogs through there. Same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and the newsletter. And our so all our customers are, are in Who there. creates those for you? Creates the newsletters? The Yes, the content. Yeah. So we work with a company called Growth Hive. It was formerly Levy Industrial. So they help us a lot. They kind of so and the guy's name is Francois Gao. So I think you know Francois. Yes, um, I, I know yes. Francois. Yeah. There you go. So Francois and I work closely together and they basically give me something to work with. So Francois and I will brainstorm some ideas for the next four to six months and come up with stuff that's relevant. And his team will kind of work on giving me something that's base, you know, mm-hmm. for me to work with. I'm not very good when I'm staring at a blank sheet of paper. <laughs> I, I find I'm, I'm a lot better if someone gives me something that I can edit and tailor it to who we are. And so working with them has been very, very helpful for me. So they, they give me a base. I go through, I edit it. Sometimes I change it completely, but at least mm-hmm. it got, got, the, got the idea sparked in my head and it gets me motivated to, to write that blog. So let's give Francois and his team a plug. What else do they do for you and how have they helped you in the last few years? For sure. Yeah. They've been super helpful from a strategy building standpoint. You know, a lot of these things I had never done, you know, this is the only place I've worked, you know, mm-hmm. basically, you know, I had odd yeah. jobs in college and high school, but this is basically the only place I've worked. So I haven't been exposed to a lot of, of the industry out there. So writing a strategic business plan, I had no idea what I was doing, you know, so he kind of helped me and their company helped me develop that marketing Absolutely, they've helped us. They've helped us just with value stream mapping and doing things and helping you know optimize processes internally, uh-huh. and really been there kind of for whatever we needed. It's it's been very very good. Francois's background, you know, is in defense industry, aerospace industry. He was in the cutting tool industry, which is pretty relevant for us. Uh-huh. So he sure. really un- he understands our business. And so he's, he's brought a, a good perspective for me. Him and I have bounced a lot of stuff off each other and we worked really well together. And he's got a great team of people over there from a digital marketing standpoint. You know, you want stuff done, they get it done very quickly. So, yeah. Do you, in the way you work with him, have him on retainer? Is there, uh, how yep. is it financially structured? I'm trying, I'm thinking I'm an owner listening. What is, how do I work with somebody like this? And obviously you, 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 you want to find somebody who has the relevant industrial manufacturing background, but how do you work with them? Yeah. It's on a monthly retainer. We do one year contracts and we just look at what's coming up and what we want to work on. You know, we were heavily, not heavily focused, but we were partially focused on trade shows. Mm-hmm. We've kind of gone back on that a little bit, obviously with 2020 happening, sure. 2021, you know, we kind of shifted some of those budget dollars that we had in there to other things. And we haven't really jumped full back into the trade shows yet. We're still kind of feeling that out. We've done a couple, haven't been, the results have been okay, but a lot of times those things take years to realize right. results from. Exploring that a little bit, I want to sort of loop back to the medium and high volume production. And those contracts don't happen from a quote comes in and 
a week later, you're getting an order for 100,000 parts. So it's a relationship, it's a partnership, it's a dance. And my background with the prototypes and the very short runs, we didn't really deal with blanket orders and long-term purchasing agreements. My language isn't really good in this world. And what I would love to hear is how you think about these. If I'm a shop owner and I see the opportunity as stuff is coming back to the U.S., and I think I I can be competitive in, in those quantities, how do you have to approach that? And what are the pieces that come together? What things might you have to consider? I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but yeah, but, but think about it from, you know, I'm a shop owner. I really haven't done this before, but I want to. Yeah. What advice? Yeah. So I think you have to have a willingness to carry some inventory. I think that's a, that's definitely a portion of it for your customers. Mm. I think when you're going to your customers and trying to sell something along these lines, the blanket orders and long-term agreements, you know, you have to show them the value. What are they getting out of it? And, and a lot of that is they need their parts on time mm-hmm. uh, and they want to have consistency. You know, they want obviously good pricing, which you can do when you have a blanket order and you're able to build a certain quantity instead of doing chopped up mm-hmm. you know, monthly quantities. Yeah. So we do the, the inventory stocking is, I think, one of the biggest things for someone that's looking to get into it. You do have to have that willingness to manage someone's inventory. And for us, it's actually the best type of business we have because it's very predictable. You know, in the typical job shop, you know, you get an order, you got to ship it and it comes in. You don't know when it's coming in. You know, it's very difficult to predict. It's more transactional. Whereas, you know, when you have blanket orders and you're looking at doing that type of business with your customers, it's much more predictable. They're consistent. These are typically companies that are, you know, have steady products that, have run rates, they're making a hundred or they're making a thousand a month of something. And you need to be able to hit those numbers every month, a thousand a month. What sort of duration are the contracts typically? Anywhere from typically one to three years. I mean, Mm -hmm. we don't have much going beyond three years. I would say one year is typical, two year is more normal, three years is is more rare. What is negotiable with the customer in those contracts? Sure, they have their standard yeah. language. They've done this before. Yeah. What can you negotiate on and what is basically take it or leave it? Yeah, I think the biggest thing we negotiate on is material price fluctuations as well as outside service process. So a lot of the parts that we make are plated or heat treated or you know passivated, mm-hmm. whatever they're painted, whatever the case may be. Yeah. But those prices change. Those are something we don't really have control over. We can negotiate certain things with our vendors, but, you know, it's still at the end of the day, you've seen it over the last year, last six months, oh, yeah. how it. much material prices have changed. And that also affects, the economy also affected how much plating costs are, you know, this sometimes oil how you, involved. How do you protect yourself as a shop then against those price surges? Yeah. So that's re- usually written into the contracts. So you, if there's a plus or minus 10%, you know, and so it can be in their favor too. So say it was the opposite. Say you got into a contract right now and all of a sudden the prices fell through the floor. You mm-hmm. know, they could come back and say, hey, there's been a huge decrease in stainless steel 303. 
which yep. can, you know, 90% of our products made of, you know, can you guys relook at this and come down on pricing? So it can work in, in both ways, which is the best way to do it. Gotcha. Dan, let's do some, some rapid fire. I have some other questions I want to get some sort of an answer from you. And one of the ones is the generational torch passing and making it so you are incentivized, which means that you become the owner or at least a partial owner of the company. How did you and your dad work through that? Yeah, that was pretty easy from my perspective. My dad, he's a very generous guy, I'll say. And he has always wanted to see better for him than he had for, for, for me, than he had for himself and for my family than he mm-hmm. had for himself. So there wasn't really a lot of negotiation. It was like, Hey, I want you to take over this business. I want you to do this. And, you know, so he gifted me part of the company and then I purchased part of the company. And that was back, you know, started in 2007, mm-hmm. let's say, and just kind of slowly as the years went on more and more and more. Again, some of it was gifted, some of it was purchased. The and purchase portion is that was that a actual cash or was that a note for the future? A note. Yeah. And, so that was a note for the future. And a private note, or did you actually go out private. and get bank funding? No, private, private note for the future. Okay. Yeah. So you know, there's creative ways you can do things, R- right? Right. That, and that's what I'm trying to get some actual real world examples out for our listeners here. Yeah. Here's another one. Can you take a week off from the shop and totally disconnect, say fly fishing in Montana? Does the shop run well enough for you to do that where you would get some sleep at night? I'll say yes, but not 100%. So, and that's probably my own doing. I'm sure they'd be fine. It's just my own brain can't settle down. <laughs> they're, they're saying, Dan, go on that fly fishing yeah, trip, right? Yeah, exactly. In all honesty, you know, when I talked about filling some of those organizational gaps as part of the strategy, that made it possible. So 10 years ago, I'd say no, I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Five years ago, that's still really hard. Today, you know, we have a really good team in place by design so that any one of us can leave for a week or two weeks even. And, yeah. you know, we're still going to operate and be very functional and be able to support our customers the way we need to. Outside of labor, what are your biggest challenges today in the shop? Right now, it's a supply chain with material. We've had a lot of projects that we have orders for that we can't fulfill because we can't get the material. So any nickel-based content material, we've been having a lot of trouble with. Hmm. We're having a lot of trouble with pricing and, you know, from OSPs, outside service process and their delivery schedules as well. Mm. But also with material, you know, it's funny, you see, you know, they used to hold prices for 30 days. Now they hold prices till the end of the day. That's it. (laughs) So it's like, you know, you're having to go back and forth and, you know, you get an order for something five days after you quote it and you have to maybe recall it. So the taxing that it's taken on our, our team from a time perspective is, is been tremendous, you know? So we're having to do a lot of those things two and three times where before it was never the case. So Mm -hmm. let's end with the future. If we are sitting around having a beer five years from today, what does CNM look like? What's changed? What is success? 
So I think you see a much more automated facility. I think you see a facility that has different technologies, additive manufacturing, more milling equipment, increase in, in value-added services that we're doing for our customers. And I think you see a team that's stronger than ever. And I think you see an operation that's going to be running basically lights out you know, five to seven days a week. You're going to get that third shift. It's right. Nobody will be there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, Dan, I I really appreciate you taking the time today to share your story. I I love seeing an established shop like CNM successfully transfer ownership and leadership to the next generation. You've already done so much to change the direction of CNM and you've got to great vision for the future. I really think our country needs owners like you as visible leaders out there sharing like we are today with other shop owners, ways to embrace technology and change. So thank you for that. And I'll throw it out to you. Is there anything else we didn't cover that you want to get out to the listener? No, I, I appreciate you you with this, you know, giving us this platform, not just myself, but everyone you've had on the show. You know, I've listened to a lot of these podcasts and it's been a great um, learning experience for, for myself and I'm sure it has for a lot of other people. So, you know, you're, you're local to where I am. Um, yeah. You were anyway, uh, yeah. but, you know, you've been an inspiration to a lot of businesses around here and you've, you've given us a lot of information, a lot of tools, obviously with paperless parts being a part of it. You know, that's mm-hmm. been a huge, huge improvement in our business and you know, I just want to say thank you for everything you're doing for the manufacturing industry and doing your part in bringing manufacturing back to the United States. That's part of our vision. Well, thank you, Dan. I appreciate that as well. How can people reach you and CNM? Yeah, I mean, visit us at cmprecisiontech.com. Feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. We're, we're around. We're very visible, I think, out there. So we'd be happy to answer any questions. Info at cmprecisiontech.com. We'd love to hear from you. Well, I get so inspired talking with owners like Dan. He's in the trenches every day, moving the ball forward. Yes, there are daily battles to fight, but he keeps his head above these and focuses time and energy on the bigger goals, the important, not urgent. So if you're listening, I'm going to ask you, have you written down where you see your shop in the next five years, what it will look like? The future starts with a plan. and The beauty is, is that it's your plan. You can do it the way you want to. You don't have to do it the way other shops have done it or the way that people expect perhaps that you should do it. You can do it the way you want to do it. But you need to write it down, figure out that vision and a plan, and then you've got something to march forward to. I think it's really important. Not urgent, but really important. So until next time. Keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Smile and make it a great day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show.